0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: There's no evidence that I know that stones get harder with age. What I do know is if you start treating patients metabolically with potassium citrate and the urine becomes alkaline, you could put some patients who have calcium oxalate stones and turn them into calcium phosphate stone formers. Those stones are harder to treat. It's reasonable to follow stone composition over time as opposed to saying you get a stone from someone once and you know what they have kind of thing. I think there is a benefit as patients pass stones to continue to send stone analysis to see if there is a change in composition, which may affect both metabolic management and your surgical decision for ureteroscopy versus shockwave.
0: and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. ReviveRX, providing urology-specific sterile and non-sterile compounding services to the specialties of urology and fertility since 2016. They currently work with over 500 urologists in 36 states Servicing over 200,000 patients live. They pride themselves on service, quality, and innovation. Products like their ICI injections are lyophilized to provide temperature stability to allow for shipping, easy of travel, and fewer incidences of preapism compared to pre mix formulations. Products ReviveRx produces include HCG, FSH, Trimix, Trimix Gel libido enhancement for men and women, hormone replacement, and over 80 unique urology-specific compounds. All pharmaceuticals produced in our facility follow federal guidelines for sourcing, compounding, and dispensing. Find them online at ReviveRx.com, that's R-E-V-I-V-E-R-X.com, or call 888-689-2271. Orders may be faxed to 888-689-1620 or sent electronically to ReviveRx, Houston. Now, back to the show. Did Jose Oche Silva as your host this week. We are happy to have as a guest this week Dr. Stephen Nakeda. Dr. Nakeda did his residency at University of Rochester Medical Center, then did a fellowship in endurology from Washington University Medical Center in St. Louis, Dr. Nakeda is a world-renowned expert in urinary stones disease and urological laparoscopy. It is worth mentioning that he did the first hand-assisted laparoscopy in the USA using a sleeve. He is the current chairman of the Department of Urology at the University of Wisconsin. Dr. Nakeda, it's a pleasure to have you as a guest today. Welcome to Backtable.
1: Thank you, Jose. Pleasure to be here.
0: How's everything? You mentioned today that you did two S-walls.
1: Yeah, so we did a couple of cases, so certainly uh, it's apropos to the discussion today.
0: When's your OR date? Are you in the OR most of the week or?
1: I usually operate three days a week, so that's the usual for me. Yeah, and then one day of clinic and we try to run the the department and do my other duties with the health system in the other day and a half.
0: So today uh, we're going to talk about S1, uh, like extracorporeal chocoblitz trypsi. But prior to talking about OSWAL, I wanted to talk about your trajectory. I definitely, you're a, a renowned urologist. You have done a lot of research, have won multiple awards. How do you decide it between academia versus private practice?
1: Yeah, I think today the dichotomy is getting smaller. I think there are more private practice urologists who are doing more teaching and are interested in clinical trials and are evaluating their practice, and by the same token, there're more academic urologists who are assessing their clinical outcomes and are more clinically based uh, than ever. So I think the, the economy's gotten smaller. You know, that being said, for me, I was always very interested, and this started from my fellowship back at Washington University with Ralph Klayman, you know, we were trying to make the field better and move the field forward. So we would ask a lot of questions and try to find the answers. And that really drove me to be my best and also, you know, made my job exciting. And I think that's my motivation to be in academics to really answer the questions. I think now been in practice for 26 years. What I've learned is You know, research has changed and it is much more based today on beginning to understand clinical outcomes, beginning to understand patient-based outcomes, and really trying to help our patients with urologic disease recover and have better results than in the past. And basic science, while it still remains vital, and obviously national funding is vital towards that. I do think we've moved to doing work that has more clinical impact sooner. And I think that's sort of the secret sauce today. So certainly I think the future is bright for young urologists because I think you have a lot of opportunity, both to some degree, the private sector, as well as the academic sector, but also, you know, I think we can innovate and have impact quickly. And, you know, interestingly, you know, Jose, you yourself are a a stone urologist, you know, I think we can all impact our patients with stone disease by making better decisions, understanding our own outcomes, and utilizing technology where it can be utilized most efficiently. So certainly it's a pretty, I think, bright future for endourology and stone disease. And minimally invasive urology, you know, certainly has a strong place to really decrease pain and suffering of our patients. With urologic disease, and that's kind of an old dictum that continues today.
0: Exactly, and definitely, you mentioned efficiency, and that sometimes for me, as a, as a urologist, I mean, I was trained more with the retroscopies, PCNLs, rather than S wells during the during our training. So that's part of why I want to talk to you about S wells to learn from you also. So, Doctor Nakeda, in terms of the patient selection regarding S wells, who's a candidate and who's not a candidate?
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, a good way to think of this, number one, is sure, of course, the majority of your patients today are going to have, if they have a procedure, will have ureteroscopy. And I think what happens is the benefits of shockwave lithotripsy, which itself is an evolving technology, is that it is non invasive. It's a non invasive treatment. It's often the treatment of choice for patients. And I think you know, if you look at the people that, that really want shockwave lithotripsy, and and there have been a number of studies looking at people who have had both ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy, and those patients that had both favored shockwave. But if you look at it, if selected well, shockwave lithotripsy can deliver good outcomes and the emphasis is on good. So maybe a better way to start is who's not a candidate for shockwave lithotripsy. So generally today still two-centimeter stone is, is the cutoff for most urologists for ureteroscopy. And those people should have a percutaneous procedure, either mini perk or standard PCNL. So those bigger stones are out for shockwave because we know that it'll be multiple treatments, risk of sepsis obstruction, and so on. So I would not do shockwave there. And then you begin to look at the stones that are smaller than two centimeters. And some of the work we did back in the early 2000s, and it's been validated by others, is, you know, virtually everyone gets a CT. And when you get a CT scan, you get a lot of information today, right? So what information is relevant to the stone patient? Well, the first thing we look at is the Hounsfield density or the maximum Hounsfield unit density. So you can assess in the office, right on your PAC system, the density of any stone. The other thing you can assess right in your office is the skin to stone distance. So the distance between the stone and the skin. So those become two critical criteria. So every stone patient I see before we do a procedure, we know their Hounsfield density. We know the skin to stone distance, and then we will typically have, you know, the stone size as well. So if you look at those three items, then... I prefer shockwave patients to have a Hounsfield density of less than a thousand. The skin to stone distance should be less than 10 centimeters. And generally I don't treat stones with shockwave that are greater than one and a half or 1.5 cm. So that's like first pass standards. You know, I know it's not a simple answer, but I think today the way I see it, you see someone with a stone that's less than two centimeters. You get a CT, right? If you just have an ultrasound or a KUV, I don't think you have all the information. And once you decide to treat, it becomes a question of getting those parameters and coming to an agreement with the patient as to what their best option is.
0: And in terms of the hospital, mean, does your radiologist at Wisconsin, they give you that information or you do it yourself?
1: Right. So our people will do it. But today, we do a lot of virtual visits, and we see a lot of scans from outside hospitals. So I usually just do it myself right in front of the patient. And it's actually a very good way for them to understand sort of what we're looking at. So it's something you can do yourself. You usually right-click, and you go to point analysis, maximum point analysis, and run it over the stone, and you can get a good measure on the density. So easy to do
0: in terms of the patient selection, we already talked about the stone. For example, solitary kidney, would you do an S1 solitary kidney, a patient that has liver problems that coagulopathic, uh, is that something you take into
1: consideration? Oh, 100%. 100%. So obviously people who are coagulopathic, if it's not correctable, you wouldn't do shockwave. Definitely not. I think solitary kidney cases You know, I think the risks are higher, so my preference would be to do ureteroscopy on a smaller stone, for sure, to get drainage. On the other hand, if it's a good shockwave case, soft stone, relatively small, and the patient wants the shockwave, sure, I would consider it, but it wouldn't be my choice.
0: So in a patient that doesn't have any 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 and no other problems, and a stone one centimeter less than a thousand... Housing units, would that be your first choice, Anesbo, or, or do you prefer something else?
1: Yeah. So I think, you know, we're making assumptions on size and location. So when it comes to treating stone disease, again, we're in an era where we have a lot of information. You know, you have your CT, so you know if it's a calculus stone, if it's a pelvic stone, if it's a ureteral stone, and if it's a ureteral stone, we even know what part of the ureter it's in. And frankly, the skin to stone distance is a reasonably good measure of just how large the patient is, right? So you sort of have your management for the patient weight and body habitus based on skin to stone. So I think you have all that. So the first thing I would say is, is the patient going to pass a stone, right? So if it's in the renal pelvis or ureter, that's a stone that's either going to pass or we're going to take it out. Calocele stones, on the other hand, are typically not symptomatic and can be observed. So, you know, again, we'll make our decision based on that. The other thing is the history. So a lot of patients I see have already had shockwave lithotripsy. So if you've failed that, obviously I wouldn't do it. And then the other is nowadays, a lot of our patients have stone analysis. So we're all well aware that certain stone types don't fragment as well with shockwave lithotripsy. So that would also affect my decision. You know, a practice that we've been recently doing, meaning the last two or three years is we do as many stone analyses as we can, because, you know, several studies have shown that over time, patients can change their stone composition and that can affect how they'll respond to shockwave lithotripsy as well. it, It helps you manage their metabolic stone disease. So again, it's gathering information. But, you know, sure, calcium oxalate, dihydrate stone, eight millimeters, you know, Hounsville density, 7,800, symptomatic, yeah. and the skin stone distance is eight. That's a great shockwave with the case, you know, and I think the chance of success is high. And, you know, I think when the case goes well, you know, it's like stealing. There's no stent requirement. And, you know, there are some people who do stentless ureteroscopy, but you know, I think you and I know that's still the minority of urologists or minority of cases. So that's how I see it.
0: And that's exactly right. I mean, I will say most of the patients already talked to somebody that gave them a, a lot of scare because of the stent. So so they come in already, ah, is there something that we can do that doesn't require a stent? I personally, if I go into the ureter, I mean, 99% of the times I will put a stent. But yeah, people don't want them. So definitely they want something different they want something less invasive. How about patients that have multiple stones, let's say three, two caliceal stones, small stones, would you offer ESPO in those patients or in those cases, you try something else?
1: Again, so multiple stones is an interesting question. So I would look at the total stone burden. And remember, if you have three six-millimeter stones, that's probably less work for shockwave than one 18-millimeter stone, right? Because it's already in three pieces. You know, my tendency is to observe calosyl stones whenever I can. It just depends on the individual and the situation. And the downside of shockwave for multiple stones is you have to divide your treatment, right? Because your, your typical recommendation is 24, 2600 shocks. So, you know, at that level, you're only delivering 800 per stone. So, your stone free rate may go down. So, I would certainly bring that into the equation, you know, as a discussion point. So our stone free rate may be or will be lower when there's multiple stones. So sure, I think that's a good ureteroscopic case because you can obviously manage the different stones because there's no limit in terms of how many shots you can give with the laser or pulses with the laser.
0: And doctor, in terms of, you mentioned your observation. So does observation in your case, does it matter the size? Or are there stones that that regardless of size you're going to observe?
1: Yeah, I think, again, a lot goes into the individual patient, right? So I think, you know, someone in their 70s or 80s, and we know as people get older, they're less likely to be symptomatic from stones. Those are better patients to observe. Also, the risks, them having the procedure may outweigh the benefit of the procedure itself. On the other hand, you know, a 35-year-old with a, a larger stone, even kale seal might benefit from treatment because obviously eventually it could be a problem, but I would, I would make the case, you know, you'd be interested in trying to do a metabolic evaluation and get those people managed medically uh, as well to lower their long-term risk of stone. And, and certainly younger people, I generally think folks under 50 that have their first stone or second or third stone are pretty likely to have more. And even are more likely to have an abnormal 24 hour urine than someone who presents after 50. So I think here you look at the big picture, but I think to me, there are new technologies in shockwave. So those are coming. They seem to come slowly. You know, we certainly see a lot of it, but it isn't as available. But that being said, you know, I think the best thing a urologist can do is know what their machine can do and get comfortable with that. John Honey wrote a very good paper now, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago that looked at various urologists and their success with shockwave. And some of the key findings were number one, it was the urologists with the best shockwave lithotripsy success rates. Number one, they did more. So they were comfortable with the machine. Number two, they used more shocks, more power, and they used more fluoroscopy. So that means they cared, right? And they were making sure they were on the stone and they were giving the energy to the the, the maximum usable amount. So so I do think there is some art to doing it. And I think maybe about 15 years ago, we went through this phase where people were just doing ureteroscopy and didn't have lithotriptors anymore because ureteroscopy was very effective and it remains extremely effective. And then technology is incredible today, as you know. But there are patients, you know, if you ask patients, a lot of them want shockwave. And and I've had a good number of patients just come in saying, coming to me because they want lithotripsy, as you already stated, just because that's what they want done. And usually those patients do well because they're motivated. They realize they have to pass the fragments. We do use Tamsulosin post-procedure for shockwave patients. So I think it has a place as a, as a non-invasive treatment.
0: And do you mention to them that there might be higher chance of subsequent treatment? Or, and when you discuss the, the procedure per se with them, or is that something that you don't mention?
1: Oh, no, definitely. You, you always talk about, I mean, you, you run the risk of a secondary procedure with ureteroscopy and PCNL as well. I just think, obviously, typically, right, you're discussing ureteroscopy or shockwave. And if we're picking shockwave, the next question is, what happens if it fails? They're getting ureteroscopy. So some patients will come to the epiphany of, well, why don't I have the ureteroscopy in the first place to have one treatment and others won't. A question I often ask the patient is, would you rather have a less invasive treatment that has a higher rate of failure or a more invasive treatment with a lower rate of failure? because I know which is which in this case. And patients generally are on one side or the other. You know, if you're a busy person and you don't want to have multiple treatments, you might just go right for the ureteroscopy. And when the case is borderline stone size, even for the perk, right, or mini perk. And then there are people that just don't want anything. They're afraid of the stent, as you mentioned, Jose. So those people are good lithotripsy candidates. And I think the key is to pick them right and a lot of that is knowing your machine, knowing its capabilities, and having a good technician. And also, I mean,
0: you mentioned it, uh, also the anatomy of the patient. If they have a, a lower pole stone with a, in a long calyx, maybe you're not going to be able to reach it on, with a uteroscope. So that, that, that also has to, to come into place. What machine do you use at your hospital?
1: Yeah, so we have a Dornier, the Genesis. So it's a good machine. It is electromagnetic. Power source. What I like about it is the II and the shock head rotate 360. So we don't have to put someone prone if we do a ureteral stone. And there's a camera in the shock head. So you can see if there are any air bubbles in the balloon, which is attached to the patient with gel. So, you know, and there are some, some good tips. You obviously, we like to use a slower rate as possible. So we're usually treating at 70, we usually gradually increase, you know, we start with a little bit of higher power and then gradually get to our maximum power. And again, these folks don't usually need intubation and they have a light anesthetic and they get up and walk out. All they get is an LMA and the IV, typically.
0: And when you mention your power, when do you start increasing the power? Is it going to be based on how the stone is reacting to it or... Is it going to be on the amount of chucks that you're doing?
1: Yeah, it's basically, we raise it gradually so that, number one, we want the patient to have too much pain and move. And we try to get it to, on our machine, about 60% power. Again, the power setting you use is inversely related to the size of the focal zone. So if you go too high with the power, your focal zone will become very small. So we generally go to 60% on that. And there is some work that says if you start and then pause, uh, you get some benefits uh, in terms of protecting the kidney. So we do do a pause after we start the treatment.
0: Yeah, I personally, I I do the same thing. I start low. But at first, when I started, I moved to Orlando four years ago. And most of the techs were used to just going high, doing a 30-minute, 25-minute case, very fast. And I'm not sure if it's just of the culture in the area but that usually doesn't yield the the best results so doctor so a patient that that you see that is not breaking do you consent them prior to another procedure at the same time or you just wait to see what happens
1: i don't think you know always if the stone breaks initially you know we have a very good floral unit as part of the the later generation machine but you don't always know and actually you don't always know You might think it's broken, and it's not. Usually, you look for the stone to actually get larger, which means it's fragmented, as you well know. But I think it's a tough call. So, so I look at it two ways. So, first, if you think it's broken, but you can still see it, and you have shocks left, I'd keep going. So, I think one mistake you can make is giving only sixteen hundred shocks and then having a failed procedure when you have another thousand. As long as you can see the stone, you should keep going. So, there's no reason to, I think, give fewer fewer shocks. And then sometimes you get fooled. And I've certainly had patients where the stone didn't appear to completely break up, but in follow-up, the result's good. So I don't pre-consent. The only time I'll ever even think about a different outcome is if we're treating a partially obstructing stone, which I wouldn't generally do too often, but we'll often give contrast and we'll look for the contrast to go by. And if it doesn't, we might consider something. But I haven't been in that situation in years. Generally, you know, we just treat and see what happens. Uh, I also think that if I have a good result, but not a total result, I've waited six months, eight months, and the stones can end up passing. So this idea that you have to retreat after three months, if they're not symptomatic, I don't think you have to. And I've certainly had people pass fragments later. And the three-month window was more, you didn't want to Do another lithotripsy and beat up the kidney and go back there so soon? But I actually would be, if anything, more hesitant to retreat with shockwave. You know, the only reason you'd do a second lithotripsy is if there's one fragment that you can break up with lithotripsy that's too large to pass. And a third lithotripsy to me, there's no reason to do that. I think if you've done two lithotripsies and you still have stones, you should do. Something else, and ureteroscopy would be the first choice. But whatever you do, I don't see a reason to do a third lithotripsy on anybody.
0: And if you do a second one, the patient is so asymptomatic, Three months, six months. What's your timeline?
1: Well, you know, I would wait. I mean, I wouldn't be in a rush if they're asymptomatic. You could make the case if they're asymptomatic, really, should you have been treating them in the first place. But I'm not in a rush if they're not having trouble. I think. To me, a classic shockwave failure is if there are large fragments that don't pass and then you're forced to probably do ureteroscopy. And I think that happens enough that I tend to favor ureteroscoping most folks. And we literally do 5% of our stone cases are shockwave at Wisconsin, maybe 8%. It's pretty small. So we don't do a lot of it. But I'll tell you, if you're selective Those are some of the happiest patients you're going to have with stone disease, no doubt. Surgical patients with stone disease.
0: And the reason that you do a low amount is just because you're a referral center?
1: Partially. So one reason is obviously we see a lot of failed shockwave or some failed shockwave cases, but I I think that trend is down. Chris Haas, my fellow, we, we have a paper that's coming out shortly that really discusses trends in shockwave and ureteroscopy and ureteroscopy has gone up and shockwave has remain stable. So we're doing more cases, number one, but much more ureteroscopy. And interestingly, the point where the number of ureteroscopies exceeded the number of shockwaves in the United States was 2017. So it's not that long ago, but it is obviously, you know, now ureteroscopy is the dominant treatment.
0: And do you think it's just the the urologist's personal choice or do you think that we're seeing harder stones I mean the patients are having just harder stones.
1: Well, I think one, you know, the younger the newer trainees are much better at ureteroscopy, right? And you all do a lot of them in your training and you're all very good at it. And I think that's an effective treatment. So I think that the, the there's a bias there from just your training. So that's probably the the main reason. Stones are harder, but I think one of the reasons we don't do that many shockwave lithotripsies is is listen to the criteria I gave you. So they have to be low Hounsfield density. So calcium oxalate monohydrate stones are all out pretty quickly, right? Calcium phosphate stones are out because they're going to be high density. And then 10 centimeter skin to stone distance. In Wisconsin, we have a lot of big people. So there aren't that many people that have a small skin to stone distance. On the other hand, I was a visiting speaker in Japan, oh, now about a decade ago. And we were talking about this. And they do a lot of lithotripsy in Japan. And they showed me five consecutive cases where the skin to stone distance was six or seven centimeters. So I think when you're that thin, you're going to do well with that treatment. But, you know, admittedly, you and I don't see that many patients that are that thin. So I think ultimately, once you go through your rigor in the workup, you know, the number of people that fit the shockwave option. You know, namely skin and stone distance, house density, stone size, you know, pretty quickly, that's a minority of cases. And what about stone
0: volume? Is that something that, that is out there? Because we always mention the highest diameter, but we don't talk about the volume of a stone, at least with the patient. I mean, is that something that you think changes something, not just the the largest diameter?
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we've published two papers that show that stone volume is a more accurate predictor of shockwave lithotripsy success rate than maximum diameter yet we don't do it and and part of it is it's totally different jargon right to have to start looking at 200 cubic millimeter stones or 230 and again voluming is not as critical to my decision making because again Once it gets to a certain size, we're not going to do it anyway. So it's not as critical. Where it is critical, and which is something we're doing more, is we have a low, ultra-low dose, low-cost CT that we follow patients with kidney stones using. So it has the amount of radiation of a two-shot KUB, and it's a CT just through the kidneys at three millimeter collimation and what it allows us to do is measure stone volume so we can track the metabolic growth of stones in patients as we follow them and that i think is valuable cuz cuz you know you and i have both been in a situation if you do a radiograph and you look at a stone you don't know if it's getting bigger or smaller you know it's a guess ultrasound is already somewhat unreliable as you know at assessing size of stone you know, basically echoes an artifact from the ultrasound. Plus the ultrasonographer is often variable. So I think stone volume has potential for following stones and looking for metabolic growth. And that can sort of foster or support the idea that you would be on medical treatment. And if the, the patient stones are growing, you know, potentially you might intervene. But in general, like a lower pulse, Loweprochalosal stone is asymptomatic. I don't see having to treat that. But if it's growing and it goes from five millimeter or let's say a certain amount of size to a a larger size where shockwave or ureteroscopy be challenging, you might consider treating it electively. But again, those situations are rare.
0: And do you think, does the healthy units change with age? Because for example, uh, at least what I see that a lot of, of this older patient population most of those stones are, are harder and they've been there for a long time. So I don't know if treating them earlier then I could have done an well earlier versus now I'm doing something else.
1: Yeah, I mean I there's no evidence that I know that stones get harder with age. What I do know is if you start treating patients metabolically with potassium citrate and you know the, the urine becomes alkaline, you could put Some patients who have calcium oxalate stones, uh, and turn them into calcium phosphate stone formers. So then they would, those stones are harder to treat. So over time, depending on how aggressively you manage someone metabolically, they can change composition. And I think another good take home here is, you know, it's reasonable to follow stone composition over time as opposed to saying you get a stone from someone once and you know what they have kind of thing. I think there is a benefit as patients pass stones to continue to send stone analysis to see if there is a change in composition, which may affect both metabolic management and your surgical decision for ureteroscopy versus shockwave, depending on the case.
0: Yeah, I didn't know about the urecyte K changing the composition, but definitely good to know because I had seen a difference just in practice, but I didn't know it was for sure. Who do you stent versus no stent?
1: Well, shockwave C almost nobody gets stented. Are you asking for that? Yeah, so we almost never stent. Exactly. So, so no matter the size? Well, we'll never get much bigger than one and a half centimeters, so we, we generally wouldn't have to stent. And, and as you said stated, I mean, we're not, one of the reasons we're picking shockwave is because we don't. The patient wants to avoid a stent, so we typically don't stent.
0: Yeah, so I usually, I mean, I personally, just more than a centimeter stent, less than a centimeter I don't, but it's just something I, I read once that and <laughs> just kept it. But so in terms of radiolucent stones versus uh, radiopaque, are you doing radiolucent stones as well?
1: Yeah, generally, well, today, right, radiolucent stones are uric acid stones for the most part. Cysteine is partially lucent, but typically those are not good lithotripsy stones anyway. But uric acid stones, first line, you can alkalinize a lot of the, those patients and manage them medically. But if they're hard to see, we have a fluoroscopic unit. So we generally don't do uric acid stone with shockwave. And I know
0: uh, some of these machi- new machines have an ultrasound guided. Do you think it's more
1: a, as a gimmick
0: or, or, or is it, I mean, does it work?
1: No, no, no. I, I think if you're facile at ultrasound and you have an ultrasound guided machine, that's a great way to go. No doubt about it. I mean, I think, and as ultrasound guided PNL has become more and more popular, we just happen to have a fluoroscopic machine. And I think our technical team has been doing fluoroscopic shockwave for 25 years. So, you know, I think it's what we're good at. But ultrasound is a reasonable approach if you can do it. But
0: you always do a CT scan prior just to make sure that, to confirm that there is actual actual stone there.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I generally recommend it. Yeah, I think anybody that you're going to operate on with stones today probably should have a CT. Certainly, you should never operate based on a KUB because you don't know where those calcifications are. I think ultrasound tends to be unreliable for size. So it's generally overestimating stone size, as you know. So, you know, I think the CT is ubiquitous. You know, we don't give contrast, which is also simplifies it. And that's the test. And it's probably ultimately the test to follow patients. The challenges is is the radiation and the cost. We've gotten the radiation down with a lot of the low-dose and ultra-low-dose protocol CTs, but we still have trouble getting the cost down, which is why I think everybody doesn't do CT for stone follow-up. Some people do, and, and some people believe even that all our data should be based on CT. And certainly from a purist standpoint, I think that's accurate. It's just a difficult practice, at least in the United States, to do CTs on everybody for follow-up.
0: Yeah, I, I, de- I definitely have seen patients with a 1.2-centimeter stone, also some, we do a CT scan, and, and the, the CT scan basically can look normal, no stones or anything else. So yeah, I always do a CT scan prior to making a, a decision regarding a stone. So doctors, we talk about a little bit about the, the frequency and, and the power. Do you start at lo- low, low power and low frequency as well?
1: Yeah, we, well, we keep, rate is always low because studies have shown that the success rates are higher if you're using a slower rate. The intrigue is some of the original in vitro studies were using a rate of 30 shocks per minute. And Arlethutriptor, the, the slowest you can go is 70 per minute. So we use a slow rate. I gradually ramp up the power after a pause, uh, and it's mostly from anesthetic standpoint, just to make sure the patient doesn't move. But that's kind of how I, I see it. We don't have to gate as much as we used to, you know, there's some patients you actually have to gate the lithotripsy treatment to the heart rate, because uh, patients would get cardiac dysrhythmia during the procedure, although I've seen that in the last few months in one or two people. So you can gate the treatment, but that will then put your rate of treatment to the heart rate, right? But that's how we do that. I would recommend, you know, a standard approach there. And I think, you know, we, we've brought it up. I mean, I think the urologist who tries harder, right, gets better result, looks a little bit more with fluoro, takes a little more time, you know, uses a little more shock power and using all your shocks, it's going to help for the most part.
0: And doctor, in terms of the acute setting, the patient that is coming through the ER, he has a millimeter stone in the proximal ureter. Are you offering well to those patients, or, or are you just doing ureteroscopy?
1: Yeah, generally, there in the emergency setting, you don't have—we don't have shockwave lithotripsy, you know, certainly available at night. And I think if you're obstructed, you have to be treated. So typically, your first choice is stent. You know, if you're lucky and they're not infected, and you're in a good situation, you can do ureteroscopy. In the acute setting, and I think that's changed over the years. it's become safer, but certainly shockwave is a totally elective procedure, you know in my view
0: yeah I, I, we have to call the the, the people that to bring in the little triptors so, so I don't have that luxury to have the s wall. that would be another good
1: setting, but right but
0: yeah, I know some people that do it, they put a stent and they break it I mean as long as they're not infected i'm I have heard stories about infected patients as well, but...
1: Yeah, well, I would never do lithotripsy on anyone with infection. So a negative urine is critical. And I think if they're obstructed, sometimes the urine can trick you. So I'd avoid shockwave for sure in that scenario. And for us, you know, our lithotripsy technician is not on call. So we can't call someone in to do a lithotripsy anyway, so...
0: And I usually don't do S-WAS for stones in the ureter. Is that something that, that you do comfortably? Oh, you prefer
1: just to- Yes, definitely. Okay. Yeah, distal in particular is a good place to do it. Yeah, larger distal and proximal. You know, remember, particularly proximal stone, proximal ureteral stones, the skin to stone distance is longer, you know, because the ureter is more medial. So I'd measure the skin to stone distance carefully. But we had someone today who we did the procedure on, 8 millimeter proximal stone, elective, and it pretty much disappeared. Uh, And this was a gentleman who had had prior stenting and ureteroscopy and came from somewhere else and wanted nothing to do with ureteroscopy and stents unless he absolutely had to. So we gave this a go.
0: And he had just some some discomfort, no severe pain, just, just a little bit of discomfort.
1: Yeah. And he knew he had a stone and there was minimal hydro, but it was in the proximal ureter. So you had to treat it. There was no doubt. He was getting something. So we did his treatment today. I don't know if he passed fragments post-procedure, but he was comfortable when we were done. So I think we're in good shape. We'll see.
0: And no stent in that patient? Definitely not, no. And what post-op medications do you, you give? Uh, you, you already mentioned the tamsulosin. What else?
1: Yeah, we put everyone on Flomax for a couple of weeks. I do my first KUB at two weeks. The only reason I do it sooner is because a lot of patients didn't come back if I waited a month. Usually, we can avoid narcotics, so we offer, typically, we just recommend Tylenol and pushing fluids, but, you know, I'd favor a narcotic over Advil for the bleeding risk.
0: Good. So, so yeah, I'm still doing the Advil, the, 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 the ibuprofen. I do Tamsulosin, and I do three, three days of antibiotics just because just the, the patient, they expect antibiotics. And I mean, yeah. No, no. Yeah,
1: well, there's, there's certainly trial that says giving a single dose is valuable. So we will usually give a single dose. I know about, yeah,
0: yeah. But so sometimes if you don't do it and that patient gets infected, they're going to
1: say so. Yeah, sure, I understand.
0: So, doctor, I mean, a- anything else that, that you want to tell our, the, the, the audience regarding nest wolves?
1: Yeah, I think, again, you know, I think there's a place for it. It's limited, but I think it's something that patients want. So I think you should be comfortable doing it, but you should understand how to make your best patient selection. And I think you have it all on the pack system. Hounsfield density, skin to stone, and stone size will tell you when you can do it. Otherwise, use the other technology.
0: So yeah, so so definitely that's some things that I'm going to... I mean, I already knew the distance. Uh, Definitely, I try not to do as well on those big patients. Not the best results. Sometimes they still want it. But as long as they are okay, but I would tell them that that your drosscomy most likely is a better option in those less than two centimeter stones.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: So doctor, again, thanks for being back table. It was a a pleasure having you here. And definitely I learned a a few tricks with the espos and will try to incorporate more in my practice.
1: Thank you. Great to be with you. Appreciate it. With support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Ishan Sangwan and Vedavi Putwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding.
0: Thanks again for listening and see you next week.